Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 1, Chapters 7 and 8 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 1, read by Jeff Breitman. Chapter 7 Arrival It had been such an arduous test to arrive that my goal was almost forgotten. Una once told me that in the effort of giving birth, she scarcely remembered there would be a baby in the end. That was how I felt. Though Iona is only a short row from the large island of Mull, it wasn't possible to see Iona from where we landed. Its presence so nearby was ghostly. I thought I could hear the bell struck for the evening chant, and I trembled. To spend ten years waiting for this new life, I can't explain it. That I lived, that no illness or accident or ocean terrors prevented me, it was a miracle. Do you remember how we laughed with the sailors that night, as they told stories on each other? We were all joyous men together. My ankles shook as we pushed off that morning. I couldn't stop shaking. We rounded the point, and Iona lay in the sea, the long, thin island surrounded by a halo of silver sea, its central rocky spine sharply rising over the monastery. It was only a half-hour row, and the miracle was before me. I recalled Deirdre saying something about the madness of miracles. Here was the small beach, called the Bay of the Dead, because here, Kings of Scotia were brought for burial in the holy cemetery. And there were the monks on shore, who would one day be true brothers to me. We beached the Karach. I realized they were Brother Reuben and Brother Marcus, and I was still shaken, surprised that I recognized them after so long. Reuben had hardly changed, a little fatter in his round face, but I knew that ironic smile. And Marcus, my schoolfellow, tall and grown now, but I knew his piercing dark eyes that always seemed to look right through me. John introduced himself to them as the boys unloaded the excited calf. Good day, God bless you, brothers. I bring a penitent who knows this place. I put my hand on Reuben's shoulder. Do you know me, brother? I have changed much, though you hardly at all. It has been ten years. Reuben tilted his head and regarded me. I knew I looked a hideous sight. My hair and beard long and matted, my clothes damp with sea and sweat. Marcus suddenly threw his arms around me. Canochtoch! We hugged as tears came to my eyes. 
I have returned. Like a wild man, he said. I laughed through my tears. Reuben put an arm around me. Welcome, brother, my old student. I remember. Finally, I pulled back. This is Kayla. He'd like to sell himself to the monastery. He brings the calf with him. They greeted him, and we walked up the road of the dead, and all was strange and familiar. The stone pillars by the road incised with crosses, the crossroad where Marcus and Kayla turned to lead the calf to the west side, while we continued up to the guesthouse, just past the cemetery of the kings and saints. To the left was the guesthouse, nestled at the foot of the rocky outcropping. To the right, on the little plain between that spine and the sea, was the round wooden house, the monastery. Within a low embankment, with the little stream and church and abbot's house. The sweet smell of peat hung in the air. The sun was a gold star in the cold, clear sky. I stood and stared at this little world that was my home now. I was home. The bell was struck. Suddenly a hundred monks appeared like a flock of doves and descended toward the church in a whirl of white robes. Reuben ushered us into the guesthouse. It's time for tears. Will you wait? Of course. The sailors and I huddled by the fire. Reuben must have acted quickly because the bell was barely finished when a boy came with bread and whey. I could scarcely eat around the lump in my throat because the chant rose from the church, booming through the air fill in the dark room with the passion of a hundred holy men. As it rose, I remembered. Cantimus in omni die, consinentes verie, conclamantes deo dignum, imnum sancte mariam. Let us sing every day, harmonizing in turns. Together proclaiming God, a hymn worthy of Holy Mary. In twofold chorus, from side to side, let us praise Mary, so that the voice strikes every ear with alternating praise. Mary of the tribe of Judah, mother of the Most High Lord, gave fitting care to languishing mankind. Gabriel first brought the word from the Father's bosom, which was conceived and received in the Mother's womb. She is the Most High, she the Holy, Venerable Virgin, who by faith did not draw back, but stood forth firmly. None has been found before or since like this Mother, not out of all the descendants of the human race. By a woman and a tree, the world first perished. 
by the power of a woman, it has returned to salvation. Mary, amazing mother, gave birth to her father, through whom the whole wide world, washed by water, has believed. She conceived the pearl, they are not empty dreams, for which all sensible Christians have sold all they have. The mother of Christ had made a tunic of seamless weave, Christ's death accomplished, it remained this by casting of lots. Let us put on the armor of light, the breastplate and helmet, that we might be perfected by God, taken up by Mary. Truly, truly, we implore, I repeated. I put my hands over my wet face. I thought of all I had known, the voices I would never hear again. These now would be the voices of my family. The sailors were listening too, respectfully silent. I stood and grasped each of their hands in turn and went out the door. Beyond the earthen vallum, the wildflowers were brown and gone to seed. The odd song of a corncrake croaked from the meadow. A sound like wood rubbing against wood. Though the buildings were close to the low drop-off of the shore, the gentle surf here made no sound. The church was before me, and the roundhouse where the monks lived to the right. It was all smaller than I remembered, except for the four giant stone crosses before the church. When I'd left ten years earlier, there were only two crosses— St. Oran's Cross and St. Matthew's. Most of the crosses on the island, those that line the road of the dead, are simple pillars incised with crosses. These four had arms and were elaborately carved. The crosses seemed to speak. Surely St. Oran had something to say. The legend was, that when St. Columba and his disciples arrived, the ground had to be consecrated by burying one of their company. Columba's uncle Oran volunteered and was duly buried in the cemetery now named for him. After three days, Columba ordered him dug up. He was still alive, in a way, and started to speak of heaven, saying, It is not what you think at all. Columba ordered his mouth to be filled with dirt and to rebury him. It was the oldest of the crosses, a pale sandy color and not quite as tall, the carved design, a jumble of images. On the arms, giant serpents threatened a human head, the soul crying for help. I looked more closely at one of the new crosses. It was covered with snakes twisting like vines, the symbol of rebirth, and bosses like roses. The other new cross was covered with stories. 
In the center was carved a portrait of Mary and the infant Jesus. Below that was Daniel in the lion's den, two stand-in lions on each side of him. Below David was Abraham with his raised sword, holding Isaac by the hair. Then there was David playing the harp, and David slaying Goliath with the catapult. It was an ambitious undertaking, this cross. It had the voice of authority. Unlike the other crosses, it had long arms, which had been fitted with a circular support. Deirdre had thought that here I would find answers. But this was a place of seeking. The answer comes with death. And what was the question? I thought of the question the monk on Isla had left me with. What does God ask of me? Of all the many questions in the wide world, that was the only question. A breeze, bearing the chill of Advent, rustled the grass. I turned toward the house. The ground floor contained the refectory, the school, and the scriptorium. The monks slept on the upper floor, entered from stairs wrapping around the exterior of the building. I wondered if I could go in. Surely it would be no affront, just to step in and look. I didn't feel the ground underfoot as I walked with quickening pace. The door swung easily inward. It seemed too easy to enter. I felt I should have suffered more for this arrival. It was dark, with smoky shadows. It came back to me and conformed to my memory, making my attention alive to the vivid reality of the place. Yes, it was like this. Yes, the green glass windows, the table, the bookcases. Yes, it was like this. Twelve tables filled the space on the side toward the door, in more than half of the round, sixty-foot room. This had been my school. This was where I scratched Latin words onto my orange wax tablet and was praised for it. Luke and Reuben had taught me then, Luke a vigorous teacher, and Reuben with his subtle, biting wit. This was where I learned about books. Four cupboards with prominent locks divided the space between the refectory and school and the smaller writing area, the scriptorium. Centered between the book cupboards was a desk with large ledgers to keep track of their lending. I could glimpse the slanted writing desks on the other side of the cupboards, on the far side of the room. There were more windows on that side, the greater light beyond. With slow, deliberate steps, feeling as if I were floating down a stream, I passed by the tables and cupboards and entered the writing area. My sense of the space was distorted, jumbled with childhood memory. It was smaller than I remembered, the desks close together. The floor was crisscrossed with shadows. Across the slanted desks hung straps 
waited at each end, swaying slightly, that held down the curling vellum. There were four desks and stools. Each desk had a slot for the inkhorn and a footrest. A small table along the side held straight edges, chalk, quills stripped of their barbs, dividers, and a jar of ink. The desks faced a lectern for the times when the scribes copied books read aloud to them. This was the heart of the place. There was where my life had worth. I examined an unfinished page on one of the desks. The letters were too long, too slanted, looking like the tendrils of a vine instead of the good, solid square script I composed. I write as least as well as that, I thought. I wondered who wrote it. Who would be so florid? Perhaps holding back wild emotion? Could this be Marcus? I went on to another desk with another unfinished page. Here, the letters were too short and wide. Here was someone constrained, who held the pen tight and too upright from the page and cut the quill narrow. I picked up the pair of dividers perched on the desk and measured the line spacing, which I knew were off. I held the dividers in my right hand and felt the sharp points of it with my left thumb and forefinger. Slowly, I pushed the point into my thumb until a drop of blood squeezed out. I set the dividers down again and put my thumb between my lips. On another desk, the writing was round. The letters rocked a bit in a loosely held grip. This was jovial Reuben. I went to the lectern and picked up the volume Reuben had been copying from. Here was something interesting. I felt the crest of the rhythm. It was careful, written slowly, square, very studied, as if copied from a master, but without roundness or spontaneity. There were no mistakes, but the scribe was trying too hard, trying to be perfect, but in a way that lacked grace or confidence. And somehow the scribe was hiding, hiding in this careful perfection, hiding himself in conformity. This was a scribe who longed for genius and missed the mark. I read the words. It was a hymnal, and the hymn was Ku Quimnes, the very one they were chanting now. I turned the page. At the end of the hymn was a small letter C in red. I stared and drew in my breath. My face turned hot. This was the manuscript I had copied myself ten years ago. I sat down with it and turned back to the beginning. I only wanted to be perfect. I've nothing to be ashamed of. Absorbed in reading, 
The sound of many tramping feet startled me. I'd forgotten to listen for the chant to end. I bolted up, but there was no way to run out without running right past everyone in the refectory. I stood frozen, my heart pounding. Two men entered the room and stopped, staring at me in surprise. I knew them later as Jeremiah and old Gormgal, the master of the library. Jeremiah looked down his hawkish nose at me, his light blue eyes quizzical and cold. Who are you? he asked, startled enough to speak against the vow. This attracted everyone's attention in the silent house, and they crowded in to see. I faced a sea of monks staring at me, and I felt stupid. I am Connachtoch, a penitent seeking my place, with a longing to scribe a great new gospel. I meant no affront. Gormgal's thin, wrinkled face relaxed into a smile. Jeremiah crooked his finger at me, and we went outside, squeezing past the wandering monks. Jeremiah looked at me sternly. Untonsured and unsworn? You don't belong inside yet. I am Brother Jeremiah, the abbot's assistant. I've been sworn these ten years. I was here as a boy. My name is Connachtach, he replied sternly. You were an oblate, and now you still await the ceremony. It is a matter of an hour. I felt inexplicable anger. There was something about this man I didn't like. Yes, it is the matter of an hour. That is all the more reason or patience. I swallowed around a lump in my throat. I only longed to see again what my heart has desired all these years. Your feelings are not important. These feelings are what you leave behind. If you follow every little emotion you experience, you will not last here. After all I had been through, I wanted to hit him. I breathed deeply and tried to quell this rotten feeling. I have been scribing still, practicing when I could. I've brought a parchment to show the abbot, and I have heard of my dear Luke's blindness. I've come to scribe. You will have a use for me. Jeremiah raised an eyebrow with a slight shrug of his shoulder. I don't know that we have the need or the resources for a great new gospel. The hides from the slaughter are in the tannin pit. We need shoes. Chapter 8 The Rule Jeremiah invited the sailors and me to pray in the church for thanksgiving for our successful voyage. The church, too, was smaller than I remembered, but the paintings on the walls of St. Columba, Doves of Peace, 
Lambs and worshipping monks glowed against the whitewash. I stood shoulder to shoulder with the sailors, my brothers, who brought me to my new brothers. We ate a good meal in the guesthouse, and I said goodbye. They would wait for the tide, then go back to Mole to spend the night before their perilous voyage home. Did I pray for their safe return? Did I think of the danger I had put them through? I was only thinking of what I wanted, impatient to start. Jeremiah brought me to the abbot's house. I had thought Brezal was old when I knew him before, but he was probably not so very old then. He was shorter than I remembered, and grown thin and wiry with age. His hair around the tonsure was speckled white and grey. Jeremiah spoke first. This is Kanachtach, who was here as a boy, seeking to return to his vow. I knelt before the abbot and kissed his hand. Kanachtach, let me remember. He closed his eyes. I felt he couldn't remember me. He thought a few moments. You learned with Brother Marcus? Yes. I've brought a parchment to show you. I handed it to him. Ah, this is fine. Very nice. I recall you did do some scribing. It's coming back to me. Thank you, dear father. I would like to scribe again and create a beautiful gospel like the one from Lindisfarne that I once saw here. The abbot rolled the parchment back up. We'll see. I'm afraid that's beyond our needs for the moment. You must go back to the beginning, I think. You will spend a penitential year. First things first. Yes, father, but I have heard that Luke was struck blind. I will be useful to you. From behind me, Jeremiah cleared his throat. There are many ways to be useful. Don't fear. There is always work, Brezel said. I feel I have a gift to share with you. I've left my family behind. There has been much sacrifice. Of course. Brazal held the scrolled parchment, tapping it absently. I felt he had hardly seen how fine it was. If you would examine it closely, I said. My knees ached on the stone floor. You've only just arrived. We don't know you. A year of penitence will show us what you're made of, Jeremiah said. You must have patience. Don't let pride lead you. I clenched my fists. It is not pride. It is not pride at all. It is a gift from God. Brezel put two fingers on my shoulder. It is not proper to argue. Calm yourself. 
I seethed to be told to calm myself. My body was rigid as I knelt on the hard stone floor. His fingers pressed into me. Breathe slowly and pray deeply, he said. I closed my eyes. I tried to do as he said, taking a deep breath. If only I could be alone with him, without Jeremiah thwarting me. Let us have the ceremony, seeing as how eager you are, Brazal said. Pray, and God will examine you. You have much to learn. I looked up at him, and I don't know what expression I had, but he said, You have nothing to fear. Did I look afraid? You will need an Amchara, said Jeremiah. I think Brother Luke would have much to teach you. As you know, he was a great scribe, and it has now been taken from him. Yes, said Brazal. Brother Luke will guide you well. Unburden yourself to him. Confession will clean your soul. I swallowed and muttered, Yes, thank you, Father. The problem with humility, Brazal said, is that it is the most painful of lessons to learn. I looked up at him, aching all over. His face was smiling, but it was a grim, stern smile. I couldn't speak. There was a public ceremony outdoors as Reuben shaved me and cut my hair and shaved my tonsure. I swore to oppose the devil. I was given a clean white robe. We were 120 men on the island, and men only. The great house was where the 95 monks slept. The rest were laymen, mostly housed between the monastery and the Bay of the Dead along the east coast, where the land was fairly flat, in a dozen small houses, between rigs of wheat and rye, vegetables, herbs, and meadow, and a few outbuildings. Brizal, Gormgal, Nithard, and Luke were the ancient old men, fifty years old or more. Reuben and a small handful of others were in their middle age, the rest ranging from their teens and a few young oblates at school. We were thin with self-denial, strong with sinew and muscle, mostly bearded, brown-haired, some black, some red. At a glance, we were similar, a family of Christian brothers, but with familiarity we took on our unique characteristics. Above the bearded chin, one had a bent nose, another pockmarked, another freckled and pale. Reuben, with his round, fleshy face, often smiling ironically. Marcus, with his frank, darkly penetrating eyes. Ninety-five young, strong men, in an ordinary life, would rule strong farms, take wives, concubines, command children, 
increase their cattle, take base clients, fight in battles, or protect their land against a chief's wanton raids. But these men did not choose that life. They lived among other men and gave up autonomy to a life that was regulated every day, not just by season and climate, but regulated by the hour. They lived to pray. They prayed together and alone, prayers that were the same on rotation week to week, and prayers that varied in subtle ways, their private prayers different from unison chant, the chants different when it was hot or humid or cold and dry, the timber of their voices softly changing, echoing the pattern of the year. They prayed through hunger, they prayed in the joy of sacrifice, the freedom of sacrifice. These were men who lived together and were silent, except for the three hours between tears and nonness, when they heard instruction or confessed. These were men who felt the weight of their sins and offered each other forgiveness, warmth, wordless understanding, because all were the same. In the tiny, packed church, our sweat warmed the air. There were offices of chanting approximately every three hours, from prime at dawn to compline just before bed in the evening, with the deep of night interrupted for matins. Between prime and compline were tears, sext, nones, and vespers. There was a meal in the morning after tears and another after nones, except for the fast days of Wednesday and Friday, when there was only the one morning meal. During times of hard work, we might have some cheese and milk before compline. This was the rule. The rule was not to talk in the house and as little as possible within the monastic enclosure. The rule was the rejection of idleness, the spurning of vanity and devotion to God. The rule was hunger. The rule was love for one's brothers, obedience to the abbot, pity for all sinners, and mercy to all who repented. One prayed for guidance from the saints, from St. Columba and from a hundred others. One sought to be perfect and know with deep remorse one's failings. One sought peace above all, the peace of Columba, the peace of Christ, peace between men, peace within one's soul. In our vow of silence, hand signals and facial expressions were the only communication. Marcus sneezed, and I made the sign of the cross. Bless you. Gormgal made a slight tugging motion as if milking a cow. Pass the milk. I passed the jug of milk and noticed that Gormgal was eating like a penitent, only milk and bread. Gormgal touched his grey, bristled chin. Thank you. I stroked my cheek. You're welcome. 
Gormgal caught my eye and crooked his finger, then dipped it, meaning, follow me afterward. There were a half a dozen boys, younger oblates, who cleared the tables. I followed Gormgal outside into Columbus' crypt. I ducked in the low-ceilinged room and knelt before the stone sarcophagus that held the saint's bones. Gormgal took down a small silver reliquary. He placed it before me. Inside was a pair of dividers, a straight edge, and a quill. Gormgal gestured to it. I picked up the quill. The tip was stained with brown ink. I stroked it. It was hardened, smooth, and dry. I had never touched Columba's relics before. I felt very blessed and smiled at Gormgal. He whispered, I think of a new gospel also. Armagh is rising up, raising up the legends of Patrick. They are raising him up, up above Columba. They are puffed up with pride, and they act as if Patrick were the mightiest, the patron saint of all Scotia. It is galling beyond endurance, he turned red. I fast against them. I eat but once every day. I fast against them in the name of Jesus Christ. They will come down. Columba must be remembered. He put a trembling hand on my shoulder and caught his breath. I put my hand around his. We sat still for a while, Gongal's raspy breath echoing in the tomb. I couldn't help smiling, bowing my head to hide it. We prayed more before we left. Outside, Gormgal leaned against me, weak with hunger. He was light as a bird, just air and bone. I held the old man, who swayed like a thin willow branch, for a minute or two. Perhaps you should eat, I whispered. As if to prove wrong such an offensive idea, Gormgal immediately straightened himself, planting his feet. He clasped his hands and raised them, shaking them to the moon. There was still some time left before Compline. I went to Luke's private cell to make my daily confession. Abbot Brizal had chosen him to be my Amchara, my brother of the heart. I knocked on the door. Come in, brother. A white cat darted in between my feet. Here's Pangurban, said Luke, and the cat leapt into his lap. Luke sat up in his cot. His blind, sunken eyes were shaped like two tiny fish. The old scribe spent his days privately praying in a little cell near the crypt. Do you have a wax tablet, Connachtoch? There should be one here. I've composed a little poem I'd like you to scribe for me. I'd like to send it to my dear old confessor at Lindisfarne, when next we send monks there. I settled myself at the desk 
and Luke recited, I and Pengor Ban, my cat, tis a like task we are at. Hunting mice is his delight. Hunting words, I sit all night. Tis a merry thing to see. At our tasks, how glad are we. When at home we sit and find entertainment to our mind. Gainst the wall he sets his eye, full and fierce and sharp and sly. Gainst the wall of knowledge I, all my little wisdom try. So in peace our task we ply. Panger ban my cat and I, in our arts we find our bliss. I have mine, and he has his. Luke asked, What do you think? As he couldn't see my smile, I took Luke's hand and pressed it to my lips and cheeks. It's very endearing. Luke stroked the cat, and purring filled the dark room. How are you getting on? Can you take instruction? Of course, I said. Can you? I remember instruction rankled you. Did it? But I'm not a boy now. But I think you feel you are finished. You are arrived. That you have entered your vocation and you have nothing more to learn. But... This is only the beginning. You are stripped of all and emptied and must be made new. Your soul is like iron to be smelted in the holocaust and beaten hard and steady. Do you feel your soul like iron? I shuddered. Yes. So it is. Fired and beaten it must be until it softly glows. Do you see the faces of the other monks, how they glow? Some. Luke put his fingertips to his forehead. That is the worst part about my blindness, not seeing the faces and having to speak to communicate. In the silent world inside, much is communicated through expression. You must be aware of that. I considered this. There was Gormgal, red-faced and emotional, and Reuben had a sideways glance and a wry, ironic smile. Many of the monks did have a glow. I wondered what my face revealed. I felt I had things I wanted to keep secret. I wish you could see me, I said. I took his hands and put them on my face. You are tense, he said. I kept his cool hands on my cheek. I came with a purpose, and it is thwarted. I've left my family, left them in want, and the mission that I felt blessed my journey is for naught. So is mine, he said quietly. Let us help you. I didn't want to speak. 
I had said more than I wanted to. He said, It is desire for things that causes pain. You must let God in, how little you mention God. It is not a desire for a thing. It is a mission from God that I came on. My work is my prayer. I am being denied God, I said, with uncontrolled anger in my voice. He was silent for a long pause as my words hung in the air. If you could only hear yourself, if you could only know yourself, do you want help? Of course, he said. I am giving you the best help I can. You don't want it. I rose. I will leave, and perhaps next time you will have something else to say. I wish you would allow me into your heart. I have bared my soul. Your heart is hard. You must soften your heart, Knochtoch. I left. After complying, we all marched up the stairs of the house to our cots. There were some coughs, a sneeze that echoed. I lay awake under the thin woolen blanket, still dressed as we all were. In a few hours, we would get up again for matins, halfway between night and dawn. I felt the presence of almost a hundred breathing men. What I tried to think was that we were all the same, all monks devoted to the chant and loving God. At home, my former home, I had been different because I stuck to my vow. Now that I was here, where I belonged, I still felt different. I thought of my soul like iron and dreamt of the anvil pounding my hard heart until it was soft as a ripe peach. In the second sleep, from matins to prime, I dreamt I was deep under the dark sea, breathing like a fish. I was a salmon, searching for my schoolmates, struggling to return. I dreamt someone was standing in the water, and I, Kanochtoch the salmon, was swimming around the man's legs, and I thought of the salmon that the otter brought to St. Kevin, and wondering if I were that salmon, sacrificed to feed a saint. Is that all? Is that all there is? To be continued.